So we're in Acts 21 and 22 this morning, a big chunk of the Bible. And so there's going to be bits of this reading where I'll summarize it in a few words and then we'll jump in. So we're going to begin reading at verse 10. But in the opening nine verses of Acts 21, what we see is Paul is on the move here on his missionary journeys. He's moving from place to place. And then as we arrive at verse 10, this is where we begin to read. As we read this morning, we remember that this is God's word, and this is how he speaks to us. Acts 21, verse 10. After we had been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it, and said, The Holy Spirit says, in this way, the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of Jesus, the Lord Jesus. And when he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, the Lord's will be done. After this, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea accompanied us and brought us to the house of Manson, where we were to stay. He was a man from Cyprus and one of the early disciples. Now we see in verses 17 to 26, Paul initially arriving in Jerusalem and encouraging the believers with stories, but also a a growing fear of um, how he's going to be received in Jerusalem. We pick up the reading again in verse 27. It says, When the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. They stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, Men of Israel, help us! This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against our people and our law and this place. And besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple area and defiled this holy place. They had previously seen Trophius and the Ephesian in the city with Paul and assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple area. The whole city was aroused and the people came running from all directions Seizing Paul, they dragged him from the temple, and immediately the gates were shut. And while they were trying to kill him, the news reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in uproar. He at once took some officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd. And when the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. The commander came up and arrested him, and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Then he asked who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd shouted one thing, and some shouted another. And since the commander could not get at, could not get at the truth because of the uproar, he ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. When Paul reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great he had to be carried by the soldiers. The crowd that followed kept shouting, away with him. As the soldiers were about to take Paul into the barracks, he asked the commander, may I say something to you? Do you speak Greek? He replied. 
Aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt and led 4,000 terrorists out into the desert some time ago? Paul answered, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no ordinary city. Please let me speak to the people. Having received the commander's permission, Paul stood on the steps and motioned to the crowds. And when they were all silent, he said to them in Aramaic, Brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense. And when they heard him speak to them in Aramaic, they became very quiet. Then Paul said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up under the city. Under Gamaliel, I was thoroughly trained in the law of our fathers and was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. I persecuted the followers of this way to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison, as also the high priest and all the council can testify. I even obtained letters from them to their brothers in Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. About noon, as I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I asked. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting, he replied. My companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. What shall I do, Lord? I asked. Get up, the Lord said, and go into Damascus. There you will be told all that you have been assigned to do. My my companions led me by the hand into Damascus because the brilliance of the light had blinded me. A man named Ananias came to see me. He was a devout observer of the law and highly respected by all the Jews living there. He stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very moment, I was able to see him. Then he said, The God of our fathers has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear words from his mouth. You will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. And now are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, and wash your sins away, calling on his name. When I returned to Jerusalem and was praying at the temple, I fell into a trance and saw the Lord speaking. Quick, he said to me, leave Jerusalem immediately because they will not accept your testimony about me. Lord, I replied, these men know that I went from one synagogue to another to imprison and beat those who believe in you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I stood there giving my approval and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Then the Lord said to me, go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. The crowd listened to Paul until he said this. Then they raised their voices and shouted, Rid the earth of him. He's not fit to live. As they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the the commander ordered Paul to be taken into the barracks. We thank God for his word to us this morning. Uh, Turn in your Bibles to Acts 21 and 22 as we begin to work our way through this this morning. 
In 2010, Colin Firth starred in the hit film, The King's Speech. In the film, he plays the role of King George VI. And one of the scenes which is most striking and memorable was the recalling of the events of 1939, when the king had to deliver an important speech, which was a matter of life and of death. This was the speech given after Britain had declared war on the German armies at the start of the Second World War. The importance of this speech cannot be overstated. But as we've watched in the movie, and if you've watched this film, you'll know this, throughout the film we've watched on as the king has struggled with a great speech impediment. As we've watched, we've seen many failed efforts We've seen lots of stumbling words, and we've seen heartbreakingly some moments of embarrassment for the king as he's unable just to get the words out that he wants to be able to say. And so as we arrive at this important scene, we are gripped. We're gripped to see if the help of a speech therapist will actually help him in this significant moment in all of history. You see, this morning the king's problem was that as the opportunity arises, as he ought to be able to speak, as the king ought to inspire confidence in the nation, all confidence leaves him. And his ongoing struggles, will they come right to the forefront of his mind and they fill all that he can think about and focus on? We maybe know that feeling this morning. Maybe get up to the front and the silent drops and all eyes turn to you and all confidence just fades away. The nerves fill your body. It's a little bit like preaching in Hill Street in front of your New Testament lecture on a book from the New Testament. Something a little bit similar. We can feel that, can't we? We we begin to feel that dryness of our mouth. We feel that we can't get a word out, never mind a whole speech. But this morning, as we continue to look at the book of Acts, And as we cover what is a large portion in Acts 21 and 22, what I think we got to see and we're going to explore together is that we can remain biblically confident no matter what happens in our lives. Now, as we begin this morning, I want to highlight that when I say biblically confident, I'm not saying biblically arrogant or biblically prideful. When I say biblically confident, I mean much more biblically assured, biblically convinced, biblically comforted, biblically knowing, and biblically able to recall. But as we explore all the events that take place in Acts 21 and 22, I think we're going to be able to see this great confidence and assurance that we can share with Paul as God's people that are not limited by our own weaknesses and our fears but our constant source of help for us. And so our first point this morning is that we can remain biblically confident even in the face of death. A number of weeks ago in church, we heard this story. We watched the video of some of the secret Christians in North Korea, which according to Open Doors is the most dangerous place right now to proclaim Christ and to follow him. The video outlined for us the lengths they have to go to meet together. And the video begins to grip us because we get a glimpse, only a little glimmer into the 
danger they are facing as they meet together in secret. I think it's so eye-opening for us this morning as church family, because for many of us, we're completely unaware. We can't begin to comprehend that level of potential threat. What it would mean for us if death was to lie outside those doors for us, that everyday reality for many believers around the world. The death could be the very outcome of coming and joining together in this place this morning to worship and to praise God and to hear from his word. That's a concept that seems completely foreign to many of us, doesn't it? It's hard for us to begin to process what that must be like, what that is like on a daily basis. But that's exactly the level of danger which awaits Paul here in Acts 21 and 22. Paul, as we've been following him week by week, has been going around all of his different missionary journeys. And every week as we've gathered together and looked at the book of Acts, we saw the next section. We saw the next place, the next thing which takes place in his ministry. All the differing reactions, all of the amazing things which are taking place as he carries out these journeys. And so as we come to these chapters, what do we see? Well, we see Paul make his way back to Jerusalem. But by no means is this going to be a holiday for Paul. Instead, this is very much a trip that could cause him his life. We read together this morning that as Paul makes his way to the house of Philip the Evangelist, he is met by Agabus the prophet, who, as we thought about our boys and girls, graphically depicts the reaction and the response that Paul is going to receive if he makes this journey to Jerusalem. Agabus has arrived from Judea, and he takes Paul's belt, and he begins to tie him up, and as he binds his feet and his hands with his belt. It's a common practice for prophets in the Old Testament to not only give their words, but to deliver the oracles of God, not just with mere words, but also with significant signs. And this sign adds power to the words which Agabus delivers to Paul as he outlines how the Holy Spirit has spoken to him and has made it clear that this is the fate Paul is going to face if he makes his journey to Jerusalem. Or to, yeah, that he is going to be bound by Jewish people. He's going to be handed into the hands of Gentile authorities. The warning is let out plain. It could not be mistaken by Paul can't be mistaken by the people who are with Paul. And it causes those people who were with Paul, including Luke, the author of the book of Acts, to begin to worry immensely for their brother Paul and for his safety. They begin to plead with him, Paul, don't go. It's not worth it. You know what's going to happen to you. Don't go to Jerusalem. It was April 1521, and Martin Luther found himself giving an account and making a stand for the supremacy of Scripture at the imperial assembly known as the Diet of Worms. I thought this photo was great this week. And he finds himself, he's surrounded by an audience of more than 200 nobles and archbishops, and it's all headed up by the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V. 
But just days before this historic encounter where Luther defends the faith, as he stands alone before the world and risks his life for the sake of God's truth, his good friend George Spallatin had sent word to him through a special messenger. And George wanted to discourage him from going to this assembly in case he would suffer the death which others had suffered before him, including John Huss. I wonder this morning if we would be any different. If someone was leaving here to head out to North Korea or Yemen or Pakistan to spread the gospel, I think we too would share that same fear and love for our brothers and sisters. But as Luther gets this response, he writes back to his friend, And I love Luther's assurance in his response. Luther says these words of comfort to his fearful friend. He says, though Huss was burned, the truth was not burned, and Christ still lives. Though Huss was burned, the truth was not burned, and Christ still lives. Luther was confident that no matter his fate, no matter if death was to come upon him, that he was confident that the truth would continue and that his hope would remain secure because Christ still lives. And Paul is no different in the biblical confidence even that he shows even in the face of death. Look with me at verse 13 of Acts 21. He states these words, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. I'm ready to be, not only to be bound, but also to die for the name of the Lord Jesus. Paul is defiant that nothing is going to stop him in his gospel work. His confidence is not going to be shaken. His faith will not decrease as God continues to work in him and through him. As Calvin writes about these verses, he says, he knew what great trouble he would suffer from his bounds, but because he knew God's will, And because this was his only rule in making up his mind, he took no notice of anything else. I love that because Paul was so sure of God's purpose for his life, the call that he had placed upon him, the eternal plan that was in place, that he was not going to be guided off course. So in this defiance, in the confidence we see an example of biblical confidence that you and I can have as God's people in the face and in the prospect of death. This morning, as we're able to grasp who our God is, how great our salvation is because of Jesus, how secure we are for all of eternity because of all that Jesus has accomplished for us, then I think even this morning, death loses some of its sting for us. In Christ's death and subsequent resurrection, you and I can face death with confidence because we too share in that great resurrection hope. Hope this morning that this life is not all that there is, 
but that we will be with God for all of eternity in his glorious presence. And even this morning, if we gather and we are fearful for death, if the confidence that Paul shows or Luther shows or we talk about this morning from God's word, if that seems like something that is just a distant dream for us, if we are struggling to think how that actually looks in practice, can I please encourage you this morning to chat to someone you trust, to confide in them, to read the Bible and to pray with them, to open up about that legitimate fear that we have as human beings. But most of all this morning, to be pointed to Jesus. That even as we fear death, we need to look to him. and We need to see his beauty and his grace once again that gives us that eternal hope. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Let's not neglect that in those moments of fear of what will lie beyond the grave, let's not neglect the privilege we have to speak to the Lord, to come before him in prayer, to ask him to give us this confidence, to give us assurance, even in the fear of death. Because we also need to pray that he will help us to be biblically confident as we live in this world now amidst all the worldly trials that forms our second point. Facing death and living amidst a worldly trial, these two points are closely linked this morning. But we need to see how it is that we live now and all the trials and pressures that are around us. How can we be biblically confident? As we continue to read in Acts 21, we see the crowds gather and they follow Paul towards Jerusalem And what was initially a really warm welcome doesn't remain that way for very long. Paul begins in Philip's house by sharing all that's been happening on his missionary journeys to the believers in Jerusalem. But the believers are quick to begin to fret about how the Jewish audience will respond to news of Paul's arrival as they've heard wicked rumors that Paul has been going around telling Jews and Gentiles alike to forsake and forget all about Moses and circumcision. As Hughes suggests, it's almost like the the zealous Jews that we read off in verse 20. They're zealous, but they're almost claiming here that we are okay, we're saved by grace, but we're kept saved by the law. Grace was enough maybe to get them in, but they needed their obedience to the law to, to keep them there, to maintain their new identities. And so that, that's why they don't appreciate this rumor that's going around about Paul, that he's telling people to forget all about Moses, to forget about circumcision, to forget about the law. So the believers in Jerusalem, they come up with this master plan to keep them safe. They instruct Paul to take part in the Nazarite vow which meant an intense seven-day purification process. And they also encourage him to pay a fairly substantial amount of money for these other men that we read off in order to cover over these rumors. And there's lots of, little, lots of different discussion about what's maybe going on here or why Paul might do this and if Paul was right to do this. But this morning, I think the best suggestion is maybe just that Paul was concerned to keep the peace in the church between both Jews and Gentiles. 
so that he was willing to go to these lengths to do it. But there is lots of different speculation. But their great master plan doesn't work. The peace process falls through. Look at verse 27 onwards with me. Read that Paul finds himself in the temple. And these Jews, well, they begin to stir up the crowd and they get to cause a scene and a spectacle begins to form. They throw out the accusation of false teaching. They begin to state rumors as if they were complete truth and have full authority. They begin to think, well, if I've heard this on the grapevine, it must be true. They add that significant detail of Paul bringing Greeks into the temple. And in verse 30, it outlines how the whole city at this point have been stirred up. And Paul then is seized and dragged out of the city as the people seek to kill him. A little flame of, of wrath has been lit and it's coming against Paul. And all of this commotion, all that's going on, this stirring of the whole city, well, without doubt it comes to the attention of the Roman authorities And they come in, the soldiers run down, they stop the beating for Paul. But it leads to Paul being bound by two chains. All the noise and shouting and the general uproar, maybe you know the feeling if you've ever been in a hall full of kids running around and shouting. The Roman guards can't find enough space to think. They're getting... One people saying this, one people saying that, another person saying this about Paul. They don't know what's the truth. They're unable to figure out the facts of what's going on. So they think the best thing to do is just take Paul away to the barracks. By this stage, Paul is incredibly weak. He's broken. He's incredibly hurt, so much so that We read that he can't even walk up the steps and has to be carried. He's physically broken by the attack and the hatred of the crowd, beaten to an inch of his life. But even in this moment of struggle, this moment of hurt and pain, Paul sees this as a gospel opportunity, asking to speak to the crowd. Many years ago when I was a teenager. I I attended a week-long event in Germany called Teen Street. It was run by OM. And one of my memories of being there for a week in the summer was taking part in what they called the Global Village. It was an opportunity to enter a time-traveling machine. Yep, you heard it here first. And you went from one location where you sat in haybells and you watched this uh, reenactment of the creation and fall account and you go back into your time machine and you move on to your next thing and you're at a fairly, you know, budget production of the crucifixion where red sauce is splattering everywhere and it goes all over you, yeah. After the crucif- and then you go back into your time machine and you end up in the last location and you're in what I can only describe as a back alley street in a very impoverished third world country. And on this street, as you walked, 13, 14-year-old me, whatever I was, you walk through this street, you begin to see all the different kinds of sins and different religious practices taking place that you can imagine. As I walked through this street with actors playing the role, nothing's seriously happening. Only then I began to see just a little glimpse 
of what would it be like to be a Christian here? What would it actually look like to, to live with the trials and the hardships that they do? I remember leaving, and I remember you, you go out the back and you chat to someone, and I thought, just thought to myself, how brave must people be to, in this hardship and this pain to share the gospel in this place? What courage they must show as they reach out in the difficult situations they find themselves in. This morning I can't time travel into your life. This morning I can't be you. This morning I can't fully know what's going on in your heart or your life or your situation. I, I can't fully understand the trials or the temptations, the struggles you face. But I know that for many of us this morning, our lives are not easy. I'm not at all suggesting that this morning. I'm not at all suggesting that being biblically confident is easy. But I do think this morning, this account of Paul ought to make us think. It ought to make us stop and think about many areas in our Christian walks. Let me name a few. How do we fare this morning? when the trials of this world come upon us? Are we able to remain confident when we face the criticism of this world? Are we at times maybe too comfortable to put our faith out there? How will we respond to this potential threat? Are we tempted to hide away from it? In our trials, do we run from God or to God? Trials can make us do lots of different things. But Paul gives us an example of trials being an opportunity to run to God rather than away, to seek his help rather than turning our backs, and to seek refuge in him and his people when everything else seems to be crumbling around us. In all of this, I'm not saying that we should become fully focused on being more like Paul. That's not the goal. But I think that as we look at him and his life, we see that in his struggles, he saw them as great opportunities to learn, to lean on God Almighty, and to lead people through the gospel. And so our third and final point this morning is that we can be biblically confident in gospel opportunities. In his account, as he stands in Acts 22, Paul begins by outlining the story of his dramatic conversion. Paul isn't distracted by the shouts of abuse. He isn't discouraged from his gospel work, which God has given him. And so even in this struggle, even in the pain that he's facing, he stands in front of the crowd. He's quick to show them respect by speaking in Aramaic. And he begins to outline to them his Jewish heritage, all of his academic achievements, his great mentors of the past, his previous passion for persecuting believers of the way, which he used to see as a threat to the Jewish agenda, just like they do. He tells them how he used to imprison these people and how that it was one day on his way to Damascus to do exactly that, that he came to see the risen Lord Jesus and was called to follow him. He recounts what we read off in Acts 9, that great light calling him and the interaction and the different parts of the conversation 
We read it together earlier in the service. and How he later met in Damascus by Ananias. He told him to receive back his sight. It's a story that we knew. But as we read from verse 17 onwards, he recalls praying one day in Jerusalem and the Lord commanding him to leave Jerusalem as the people in Jerusalem will not receive him. And he, he was to go to the Gentiles. And even after Paul's honesty about his shortcomings and his mistakes, God still sends him to the Gentiles. This causes the crowd to go into absolute uproar. Because Paul is making it clear here that it was God's great salvation plan for the gospel to go to the Gentiles. This was not something that came out of Paul's clever thinking. This was God's plan. And they were appalled that the same message, the same hope was available to Gentiles as it was to them. And here Paul faces serious threat to his life because of what he has proclaimed. Paul is then taken out. He uses his Roman citizenship to enable his release. In the face of death, and then amidst worldly trials, Paul uses his testimony to preach the gospel. And so what are we up to take from this? What are we to take from his speech, the following commotion? What does all that mean for us here this morning? Well, I think it's a humble reminder that our mission and purpose is to proclaim Christ even when our backs are up against the wall. To proclaim Christ even when the situation maybe isn't ideal. Because if we're honest this morning, we know that this world seems to get further and further away from tolerating biblical truths. It's going to get harder and harder for us to take a stand for the gospel This passage acts almost as a challenge for us not to seek the favor of fellow humans, but to seek God's glory and God's glory alone. To be biblically confident as the opportunity opens up before us. And to share this gospel hope which has saved and transformed us if we're part of God's people here this morning and given us that eternal hope and that great peace that passes all understanding. But sharing gospel truths can also be really hard. We know that. It can be a tough thing to do. It's hard to know, isn't it, what to say when the topic of sexuality arises at lunchtime and work. When your family begin to quiz you again about why you're going to church for another Sunday. Or when the class discussion makes you want to hide in a corner. But this morning, as those who are empowered by the Holy Spirit, we are enabled to speak words of truth and of grace into every situation as we trust prayerfully for God to work in and through us, just as he did in Paul. This passage is significant because this morning, I want us to see that God can use absolutely anyone in the most amazing ways as he works through them for his glory. Paul's story is noteworthy because he goes from persecuting Christians to being persecuted for being a Christian. God changes his life and so he uses him. And we've seen that it's not been easy for Paul at all. 
not like he becomes a Christian and gets a cozy armchair ride for the rest of his life. But he knows what God has called him to do. And so he's biblically confident even in the face of his own weakness and fear. But this morning, can I comfort you and help you and encourage you that your story is significant too. Because the same can be true with us. We maybe wonder this morning, how could God ever use me? But even in the suffering, even in the weakness, even in the trials that we face, he can use us this morning because he works in us. He's the God that changes us. He has called us from being lost in our sin and he's given us a glorious new identity and purpose because of the Lord Jesus. And so our mission, our call this morning is to go into all the world and to proclaim this great news that Jesus Christ has come to save sinners and take us to our eternal home. That is our eternal hope of glory. That is what we need to build our lives upon this morning. That's a message we've got to proclaim from the very rooftops. Jesus Christ has come to save sinners and to take us to our eternal home. But hearing that this morning doesn't mean that our lives will be easier automatically. Hearing that this morning doesn't mean that gospel conversations will just happen. But I believe, pray this morning, that as we come to know this truth, as it comes to fill our minds, as it encourages our very hearts, that this is the truth that causes us to hope in the face of death to show courage when the trials press in, to show faith as we suffer, to show boldness when opportunities arise. This is the truth that enables us to trust God at all times, both good and bad, because we know that God is faithful, that he is truly kind, and that he has taken us to himself, to our true home for all of eternity.